So we are looking this morning at um, the passage that Nate read from chapter 28, but the passage is actually a little bit wider to put it into context. In in my view, we have to start at 26.32 and finish at 28.11, essentially. It's the, the journey that Paul does from Caesarea, which is in the coast of Israel, to not quite getting there to Rome. So he's en route to Rome. And what's interesting about this is why is it here in such detail? If I were to write Acts, and I'm not getting grandiose, I would essentially say there was Paul in Jerusalem and then Caesarea. He wanted to get to Rome. He had a shipwreck, kind of trouble en route, and then he got to Rome. I wouldn't spend two and a half pages in some Bibles on the journey. So when I first got the, um, the email message from, from Nate and sort of scrolled down and I saw it, it said, at my initials, chapter 28, 1 to 10, I thought, oh great, gets shipwrecked on Malta, bitten by a snake, lives, heals a few, few people, leaves Malta. Thank you for coming. But then I went over it again and again. Wanted to contextualize it to see what is happening here. Why is it so important to the Holy Spirit who in turn inspires Luke and Luke spends so long putting this into the book of Acts? So if it's important to God the Holy Spirit, it's important to us. So let's have a better look at it and to see what is happening. And if we stand back and look at the journey, the first thing that we have to look at is the providence of God. God has determined that Paul will go to Rome. Now, Paul was a seasoned traveler. So when they were about to set off, And it says in the text that it was around about the Day of Atonement, so that's the back end of September or early October. In Roman times, that would just be unheard of to set sail then. And as a seasoned traveler, who we know from his letter to the Corinthians, had already been shipwrecked three times previously, so he knows what it's like to get shipwrecked. He's actually warning everyone, let's not go on this journey. And he actually says, because people will die on that journey. It's it's a bad time to be traveling in open seas. But they go ahead anyway. And then we see a few things happen on that journey. So Paul thinks it's dangerous. They do come unstuck. There's there's two ships, essentially, one that carries them to Asia Minor and the next one that carries them over to Malta. But even Paul is proven wrong when God intervenes. And having said that it's dangerous, God says... And Paul tells us a story that last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So that's 276 people essentially being protected by God in complete open seas, even though they are shipwrecked and and will get to their destination. So it's... The human assessment of the situation, 
as against the providential outworking of God there. Now, taking a step back again and looking at why is this here and in such great detail, we, we come at it and we, look, we looked at the textual style of Luke last time I was speaking. Here, it is the most elevated Greek that is being used. So in chapters 1 to 12 of Acts, there's a lot of Hebraisms coming in. Here, it's pure Greek. It's Luke writing as Luke. So whereas we see in, the, uh, in his gospel, in, uh, where he says he's researched things and he's setting things out, here he's done the same type of research on the parts that he's not there, and he utilizes language that's appropriate. Here he has not done any research. This is one of the we sections of the book of Acts. There are four of them, the first of which is 16, 10, and then in 21 and, uh, a couple of times, and here. And he's telling us that he's an eyewitness. That he starts off when it was decided that we would sail to Rome. So he's saying, I was there. He's throughout this journey. And it's interesting that Nate uh, last week touched on friendship. And at the opening of this passage, we see Paul the prisoner accompanied by two friends, Luke and Aristarchus. They didn't have to go with him, but they decide to join their friend Paul on this journey that he's making to be tried in Rome as his friends. So we see this time and again in the book of Acts. And Nate talked about it last time, and it happens again. It kicks off. So we are setting off, says Luke. And everything that he is doing here is setting out the journey, setting out the under, his understanding of what's going on. You almost visualize him having a notebook as he went along and writing down what happened and then setting it out. So that's the journey. In a nutshell, they set off, change ships in Asia Minor, get into massively turbulent waters, and then ultimately God protects them in that whether it be by the weather or whether it be by Roman law, they should not have survived. Because as soon as they were getting shipwrecked, Roman law says that you execute the prisoners. Otherwise, the guards get executed because they didn't deliver them safely. And on this occasion, the centurion has mercy and decides not to do that and allows all the prisoners to swim ashore onto Malta, including Paul. So there's a a change as regards the circumstance of the shipwreck and the Roman law and the application of it in this context. So we see the providence of God kicking in as, as they journey, not quite yet to Rome, but they get to Malta. So again, recapping the story a little bit, they arrive at Malta and they are shown unusual kindness, it, it says in our text that was read. That's philanthropy is the word behind it. They were shown philanthropy. So that is what happens when they arrive at Malta. And then we get the bizarre incident of, um, of Paul putting sort of wood in the fire and getting bitten by a viper and shaking it off. And this is very, very interesting at multiple levels. Textually, this is one of the bits where we can definitely see Luke coming through. Um, and actually, if people challenge the veracity, the truthfulness of 
something like the Book of Acts, where some really grand things are happening, from healings to this. And, and, and if they say it's, it's mythology, one of the arguments we can, we can make is, is that it's, it's an eyewitness account. And it's the eyewitness being a doctor, where it says, after the, uh, the snake bite, that the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. The swell up bit, whilst perfectly accurately translated, in fact, what it's saying is, bearing in mind Luke is a physician, that the people expected him to have an inflammatory response and die. So Luke completely naturally, when he's using his Greek there, I'm, I'm pretty certain he didn't even realize he's doing it, uses a medical term. And so you can stand back and look. There is a common term he could have used for swelling up. What he used does mean swelling up, but actually it means inflammation. So it's, it's very interesting that he does that. And you kind of see the person behind the text coming through as he's just happily recording what's going on. So he, Paul does not die. And then we see uh, them switching gears a little bit, saying, well, he might have been saved by that, but the goddess Justice is going to get him. Justice was, in Greek mythology, the daughter of Zeus and she was essentially attributed in mythology as a, uh, the, the goddess who'd go around picking off where justice had not been seen to be done and carry out justice. So that mythology is kicking in. And when that does not happen, they also think, oh, if it hasn't happened, he must be a god. And we know, we know that Paul has had this before in his career, and he shrugs it off and carries on. And, and then we see healing uh, taking place over there, and we see a parallel, and I'm going to go much greater depth, just sort of setting the scene on this, and we see the healing ministry of, he's on the island for three months because the seas are turbulent for three months, so he heals Publius's father, and then carries out doing the rest of the healing ministry that he did there. But what exactly is going on here? Because he's it's the advance of the gospel, but in a way that we don't normally associate with Paul. He has, there is no record here, and I'm sure it may have happened, but there is no record that Paul is preaching at this stage. It's very, very interesting that Luke is there, and he hasn't said, and he stood up for three months every day preaching to all who would listen and some people fell off a window and then he had to heal them again, etc., etc. There is no record here that the gospel is advancing by way of preaching. So what is happening? Let's take a step back. When Jesus, as recorded in the gospel of Luke, same author, was about to begin his ministry, he stood up in a synagogue, unfolded the scroll of Isaiah, and for us that would be chapter 61 of Isaiah, and read, and I would read it too, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So. The gospel, of course the gospel is a sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ, but when Christ begins his gospel, he also brings healing. He is restoring humanity. And yes, there's the ultimate restoration of humanity, 
but we can see Christ concerned with the physicality of human beings as well. And when silently almost the gospel is advancing here, he's through action, we see that being mirrored in what Paul is doing in Malta. So, having, having looked at this, we have to take a step back and ask ourselves the question, what exactly drives this man, Paul? He set his, when Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry, traditional translations will say he set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, he wanted to go there because he had a mission. And we see in the last few chapters of the book of Acts that Paul is setting his face to go to Rome. And a couple of years earlier, he wrote a letter, and unlike his, most of his other letters where he's writing to a church which he has set up, in Rome, he's writing to a church he's never visited. <clears throat> so his initial greeting is very, very different. Rather than saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ, hello, he actually sets out his credentials. And I, I just want to read that to you to contextualize what's going on. So when writing to the Romans before he's ever been to Rome, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he's setting out essentially what drives him. And in other context is, for instance, in the first letter to the Corinthians, he says, he talks about the tradition that he has received and he wants to pass on. So he says, for what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, the 12 apostles, and 500 and on and on. So he's, what drives him is his gospel message, his zeal to get that gospel message across. And to Timothy, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. So what's happening here? What's, you'd think that he'd give up, but he's not. He's zealously getting to his destination. And what drives him is the purity of the gospel that he knows. He has been, become convinced of what he believes to be true. And if he knows the Son of God, he has to take this message across to the ends of the earth, which we'd seen earlier on in Acts. And he's driven to go there. And when Christ has said, again, in, in Luke we see it, if anyone is my follower, they should steadfastly take up their cross and follow me, what we see in Paul is that he is steadfastly taking up his cross, his mission, which Christ gave him, and following him. So that is what's driving him. At all costs, he must get to Rome. 
And it's, it's interesting, like, why Rome? It's the capital of the empire. It's almost as if to say, if we were sitting in Malta now, we'd want to get to London, because if we bring the message to London, this grand cosmopolitan city that has people from everywhere that have flocked in, if we get that message there, that message goes out from London to everywhere. And that, essentially, is one of the driving forces of what Paul is trying to do. He wants to get to the capital of the known world of the time, bring Christ into the capital, and bear in mind, he sits trial in front of Nero in a couple of years' time. So he actually, it's not recorded in Acts, had to defend himself there. If he's defending himself in the manner he's done before Agrippa and Festus, you can just imagine what he's saying there. And interestingly, and you'll come to see this next week, this is an open-ended book, the book of Acts. It just stops. They get to Rome, he starts talking and stops. It never actually carries on. It's an open-ended book where the journey carries on. Luke just abruptly cuts it, where he thinks, yep, he's got to Rome, and then doesn't record beyond that. And it's, it's a stylistic effort, in my opinion, so that you would begin to think, well, what's happening next? And so that has driven the journey. That has driven him going through all adversities throughout the book of Acts as we come now, for want of a better way of putting it, to bring the ship to port. That's, um, that's what's going on here. So we see the journey. We see the way um, Paul has operated through the book of Acts and is now operating. And we see what he does when he gets into a particular scenario like Malta. And the last bit of it is really rather interesting regarding the, um, the, the healing ministry that, that he does. Because it's, it's very similar, but also rather different from what Christ did. So if we see again, sticking with the same author, Luke, the way Christ began his healing ministry, there's a parallel text. The text here is about Publius's father suffering from a fever. The fever is most likely something called Maltese fever that was as a result of drinking impure goat's milk, and it tended to cause immense symptoms that lasted a couple of years. It was common in, in that part of the Mediterranean at that time. Not only that, the poor man's got dysentery as well. So that's, um, that's, that's what's going on there. And we see the parallel with um, Simon Peter's mother-in-law suffering in, in Luke. Now Christ went in, bent over, rebuked the fever, and it left her. And then... Others with unusual illnesses were brought to him and he healed them. We come to Paul. He, the father, Publius's father, is ill. And so Paul is invited in. Spot the difference. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. So in the context of Christ, authority resides in Christ. He says it, done. He doesn't need to attain authority from somewhere else. He just rebukes the fever, off it goes. In the case of Paul, 
we see a healing ministry taking place, and the first instance is Publius's father. But it works out differently. He has to go in accordance with God's will, turns to God, prays, then he's able to place his hands and heal. Then his healing ministry begins. And I think we have to, and I, I, I might go on a theological tangent now, but I promise I will come straight back to the core of this text. We have to look a little bit at um, more widely gifts, more narrowly gifts of healings. And what is going on? How, how is it done in the book of Acts versus now? Is it the same? Is it different? What's the understanding of, of what's going on? So the, um, the text that most people are familiar with is 1 Corinthians uh, 12, essentially, when it comes to uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit. But there are other texts as well. Uh, we can look in Romans, we can look in Ephesians, but, but the one I want to go into with particular reference on healing, and then to come back to Acts, is, is 1 Corinthians 12, where, just as a reminder, I'll read a bit of it, and then we'll look very closely. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts, plural, of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, etc., etc. Now, there is, an, there is an argument that a lot of current theologians might make that the gifts were there utilized at the advancing of the gospel and not so much utilized now. And it is true that we see the signs and wonders gifts being utilized in the book of Acts. But are they as ubiquitous then? Is it less ubiquitous now? Has it changed? The number of times, if you count them in the book of Acts and you see signs and wonders gifts, there are quite a few. But Acts is covering 30 years. So we might read the book of Acts in one sitting and, they th and think it's prolific, and to some extent it was happening. But also you must take a step back and see, is it as prolific? Does it happen on demand? God the Holy Spirit is at work we cannot box the God, the Holy Spirit, in. He will advance, and he will do his signs and wonders as he goes. But we should also not make him on demand by belittling the Holy Spirit and thinking that the moment we call on him, it happens. He is sovereign, we are not. But he decides to gift us. So Paul turns and prays, then heals. Seeks the Holy Spirit's power, granted to him, does it. We are not faith healers. We are not a shaman who just does things as it happens. The power does not reside in us. The power resides in God, the Holy Spirit. He wills it, utilizes us. And that, I just wanted to draw that to your attention. At the same time, I disagree with those who say that gifts would have stopped at the end of Acts. The church of God continues until Christ returns. And a test 
in the early church. If we look at early church fathers like Tertullian as to whether something was a true church or whether something was heretical, was whether a ministry of the Holy Spirit, such as healings, were taking place in that church. So, early church history, the writings of Paul, the less ubiquitous nature in some contexts than we would expect it, so if we are expecting it all the time, take a step back and look at the fact that this is 30 years, at the same time expect it, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's just that he is sovereign. The church hasn't ended. It has to carry on. There is no indication scripturally, in my opinion, to say that gifts would cease, although I'm happy to debate on this point. Now, if we look at the um, manifestation of the Spirit, if we look at what is a gift, the Greek is the charismata. Charis means grace. Charismata, graces. So it's the graces of the Holy Spirit that are coming through in what we are referring to as gifts. And I think we miss the link a little bit if we don't look at the etymology, if we don't see what's going on. So just as the ultimate grace of God is the salvific grace of God, that, he, that Christ entered time and space to draw out a people to himself, to enable forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection, to destroy death by his resurrection, and therefore to give what we normally call eternal life, but actually that's the elevated life going unto the ages of ages. It's much more of a compound word. If that is what he's doing, he will carry it through. And if, the, if God will carry it through, he needs to equip his church to carry it through. He needs to equip his people, as he has done in the case of Paul, to carry it through. At the same time, when you go home on someone, I would like to urge you to look at that text in 1 Corinthians 12 and notice the difference when it comes to healing. It's the gifts, plural, of healings, plural. The NIV doesn't put the healing in plural, as a lot of English translations don't, because it reads badly if you do it. But actually, if you look at it very literally, the gift for example, is word of knowledge. The gift is a message of wisdom. The gift is gifts of healing. So, again, I go back to what I said earlier, that there isn't a... I cannot say I have this universal gift of healing, for example, and anyone I touch will get healed. It's gifts of healings being given to a particular person as the Holy Spirit wills it. It's not an individual aggrandizing power and therefore saying, I'm a healer. It is the Holy Spirit that can and does and will, when he wills it, give a gift of healing and then another potentially and then another to the same individual. But no individual should suddenly elevate themselves and think that they've got massive ministry. They might, in a sense that the Holy Spirit may repeat the gifts of healings, but it's not them. So we should be very careful when someone 
goes down a healing ministry. But at the same time, not throw the baby out with the bathwater by saying, it doesn't happen today. Look, it was so much more frequent then, etc. So we have to carve a very careful line. And we see uh, James coming in at this as well. And it's, he, he's coming at it more from an angle of faith because he says the prayer of a righteous person achieves much. And then he's saying that in the context of sickness and healing. So both, both of them are coming from the, at the same angle. If he wanted to call it a universal ministry given to a particular person, Paul would have, Paul's very careful. He would have said, and someone has the gift of healing all the time. He doesn't. But he does say the Holy Spirit heals. So I just wanted to use the text in 18, 1 to 10 to bring this a little bit to your attention. Um, because we see that that's how Paul is operating. He can't heal, he prays, then he lays his hands. And it was the will of the Holy Spirit to give a gift of, the, of healing then. So, by all means, utilize whatever in his sovereignty the Holy Spirit gives. By all means, we should be expectant, but never taking him granted. Because as soon as we take the Holy Spirit granted, you cannot box the sovereign God in. It just won't work. So, so that's kind of one of the interesting pictures that we see, that we see here and how it is, um, it is working itself out. And what is really Paul's gospel? Paul grounds himself in the ultimate healing, which is the resurrection. Countless times, he says, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we may as well pack our bags, essentially. The ultimate healing is the complete healing that God will bring to his creation. And that is seen in the resurrection of his son. And as this week, we as a nation mourn the loss of our queen, the resurrection individually of all who have fallen asleep in Christ, and also the rebirth of the entirety of creation ultimately. And that is what's driving this man to do this journey, to advance the gospel as Christ advanced it at the start of his ministry, but more widely advancing the gospel by his teachings. And that is what I think we should take away, that drivenness, that the true transformation of the gospel has made to this man. And then we, as we go on, and next week you'll see it, there are parallels that Luke draws. At the end of Luke, we see Jesus, though hidden, uh, talking to two individuals about the law and the prophets and explaining everything. And we see Paul, when he gets to Rome, same phraseology, utilizing the law and the prophets, he explains everything. In Jesus' case, they believed it. In Paul, when he was bringing, uh, bringing the same message, same wording there, they didn't. But our mission as a church, when it abruptly stops at the end of Acts, is to carry on the church, to carry on his mission, to carry on in the vein of Paul what he has been trying to do. Christ started it, Paul continued it, we are continuing it. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
always seeking the will of God, underpinned by Scripture, from if Paul was gifted in the Spirit, he was also very gifted in knowledge that he had attained. So we can't test one without the other. Otherwise, we become the fountain of knowledge. I feel I have a message for you, therefore it must be true, and I'll attribute it to God and give it. No. Underpinned and tested in the, in the word, then we can do it. So the charismata are there. The charismata are given. The charismata are utilized, but within the framework of the gospel that Paul preached in the vein that Paul himself utilizes it. And let's flourish as a church.